0: Turn in your Bible to Revelation 14, Revelation chapter 14. In the past couple of messages, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, we have met the villains of the book of Revelation. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Satan, Nero, and the Roman Empire, and the Jewish religious leaders who persecuted the church. Today, we see the Lamb again. Jesus and his people with him and we'll also hear some messages from angels and we will see a double harvest so let's read the passage and then we'll unpack what this means and what God wants to use this for in our lives as we study it we're going to do all of chapter 14. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the lamb. And with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. Well, let's take just a minute to kind of zoom out and find our place in the book of Revelation, like the You Are Here map at the mall that helps you to figure out where you are. It's good to get our bearings so that we better understand what's happening around us in this book. After the opening chapters of the book, where we saw the vision of the Son of Man and the letters to the seven churches and the throne room scene in heaven, if you'll remember, we saw the Lamb who was slain take the scroll and open the seven seals. He's the one who had the legal right to execute this covenant document, to bring about the judgments contained in it. The legal offense was against him. He was rejected and murdered by Israel, even though he was the rightful Messiah and king. We saw the seven seals opened, and then the seven trumpet judgments began. And after the seventh trumpet judgment, in chapter 12, we saw the dragon, Satan, the woman, and the child. And then in chapter 13, we saw the first beast, Nero and the Roman empire, and the second beast, the false prophet, the Jewish religious leaders. And that brings us up to chapter 14 this morning, where we have the lamb again with the 144,000, as well as several different messages from angels and this double harvest. Now, once we move on to chapter 15, we will find seven plagues, and then in chapter 16, seven bowl judgments. Okay, so that just helps to situate us where we are this morning in chapter 14. And before we talk about what's specifically here in this text, I just want you to notice how this text follows on from what we saw last time in Revelation 13, 11 to 18, the passage about the second beast, the false prophet. So, the false prophet appeared as a lamb. Here we have the true lamb, the slain lamb, Jesus. The false prophet did what he did. He acted in the presence of the first beast, the empire. Here, the action is in the presence of God's throne. Those who dwell in the land worship the beast. Here, the redeemed worship God. The false prophet apparently brought down fire from heaven. Here in 14, we have a voice from heaven and we have an angel from the altar where the fire is, the altar of incense. Last time we saw that the false prophet deceives men with lies. Here, the 144,000 have no lie in their mouths. The image of the beast spoke lies. Here, the heavenly beings sing praise. The false prophet caused people to take the mark of the beast on their forehead. Here are 144,000 who are marked on their forehead with God's name. The false prophet prevented God's people from buying and selling. Here, the 144,000 are themselves purchased by God. In other words, John is presenting this that we're reading this morning in chapter 14 as the answer to the challenge of Revelation 13. Chapter 13 is telling us about the opposition to God's kingdom. But here it's made clear that God defeats that challenge. All right, so let's look at the passage itself. The first five verses, the first scene here. The lamb is standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000. Now, the lamb is clearly Jesus. He's the slain lamb that we saw in Revelation 5, taking the scroll to unseal it. He's a lamb because he's the perfect sacrifice, taking away the sin of his people. So what is Mount Zion? When John uses that term, what is he intending should come to our minds? Well, Mount Zion is the symbolic place of God's presence with his people, especially as he protects and defends them. Mount Zion is the place where God reigns over the earth. Listen to the words of Psalm 48. Okay, just listen as this describes Zion. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. I think I have 148 on there and it's supposed to just be 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. With her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Mount Zion is the symbolic place of God's presence with his people, especially as he protects and defends them. It's the place of God's reign over the earth. At Jesus' triumphal entry, remember the gospel writers connect Mount Zion to the prophecy of Zechariah, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. And that was coming true in Jesus. So when John, here in Revelation 14, describes the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000, the people of God, we should understand this as Jesus the King who is fighting for and defending and protecting his people. Now, we first saw the 144,000 back in Revelation chapter 7. I won't go through the whole explanation again, but just as a reminder, this is the representation of the full number of the people of God. 12 times 12 times a 1,000. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles in the New Testament, and all of the people that they represent. So times a 1,000, a very large number. It's the full number of the people of God. All the faithful believers, Jew or Gentile, who have faith in Christ. And here... In Revelation 14, we see that they are worshiping before the throne. They're singing the new song of redemption in Christ. You can only sing that song truly if you have been redeemed. It reminds me of the verse that tells us that that the angels long to look into the things of redemption. The angels can't personally relate to being redeemed. Only the redeemed can sing this song. And their virgins, that's the symbolism of purity and faithfulness, contrast that with Israel. Israel has been adulterous. They've been unfaithful. They've run after other gods. And they've rejected their husband, Yahweh. But these 144,000 are faithful to Christ. They're the seed of the new people of God, the church, who will become the bride of the Lamb. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, speaking to believers. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we have here the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, defending and protecting his people. It's the people of God, both on earth and in heaven. It's the faithful on earth, and it's those we saw worshiping around the throne back in chapter 5. All of the people of God with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Now in the next section, verses 6 to 13 we see four messages. The first three are messages brought by angels and then John adds his own comments with what he heard from a voice from heaven. So let's look at each message in turn. The first message, verses six and seven, proclaims the eternal gospel. The gospel is the good news. Remember, Jesus proclaimed this during his ministry on earth in Israel. He was announcing The kingdom of God has come, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. But now this good news goes to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. It is proclaimed, verse 6, to those who dwell on the earth. But remember, like everywhere through the book of Revelation, when you see that phrase, on the earth, you should be thinking, in the land. That word is the word for a particular piece of property. It's it's signifying for us the land of Israel, okay? So this message is proclaimed to those who dwell in the land and it's proclaimed to every nation and tribe and language and people. In other words, to the Gentiles too. Our ESV Bible obscures this a little bit as do a lot of the other translations. If you're looking at it, after the phrase on earth, the ESV leaves out the word and, okay? So this is how it should read. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth and to every nation and tribe and language and people, okay? And the reason that's important is that the, real, the verse is really indicating two groups, that the gospel is proclaimed to, okay? So it's an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth or to those who dwell in the land and the other group to every nation and tribe and language and people. This eternal gospel, this good news of the kingdom is being proclaimed to those in the land of Israel and to everyone else. That's the emphasis there. It's the good news that the king has come and the kingdom has arrived. Well, the second message then, verse 8, is the announcement that Babylon has fallen. This is a little bit of a preview of something that we haven't gotten to yet. John likes to do this. He drops in these little, like, things that he hasn't explained yet. And then a couple of chapters later, you get the explanation. Well, when we get to chapter 17, we will be introduced to Babylon the whore. And we will see her downfall. So I won't spend time on it this morning other than let me just give away the most important part here, the secret of who Babylon is. Babylon in the book of Revelation represents Jerusalem. It's another image for Jerusalem. Jerusalem has taken on the characteristics of Babylon, the characteristics of a perennial enemy of God. And the downfall of Jerusalem is being announced. And we'll get to more details about it in later weeks, but that's what this message is announcing. Now, when you take those two messages, the, the message of the eternal gospel and the announcement that Babylon has fallen, and you put those together, I want you to think back to what we heard Jesus say in Matthew 24, when we went through that in the fall. Matthew 24, verse 14, and this gospel... Of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's exactly what these two messages are. It's the eternal gospel being proclaimed to every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And then the end of Jerusalem will come. Babylon has fallen. Now, if you're thinking, Well, wait a minute. The gospel hasn't yet been proclaimed throughout the whole world. We talked about this when we talked about Matthew 24, but it's probably a good time for a reminder. Let me just walk you through what this is really saying, okay? So for starters, what does the phrase the whole world mean? Think about Luke 2, the beginning of the Christmas story. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So who was registered? All the world. What does that mean? It means the whole Roman Empire. They were not registering people in Australia. They were not registering people in North America or in the Philippines or in Japan. It was not the whole planet. It was the whole world. The word here is oikumene. It's where we get our word economy. It's the whole system. The whole Roman Empire, okay? That's who was being registered. It's the same thing, that that it's present in what Jesus is saying. The gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, the whole oikumene, the whole Roman Empire, the whole system. Now, then the question has to be, well, did that happen? Now, where would we find an authoritative answer to the question of whether or not that happened? Well, if we could find it in Scripture, that would be authoritative, right? So let me just share a few verses. Romans 1 8, Paul writes, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. What does he mean? The whole Roman Empire. Romans 16, now to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known, past tense, to all nations. All the nations that make up the Roman Empire. That's what that's talking about. Or Colossians chapter one, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Again, the whole Roman Empire. But you hear the language the gospel has gone to the whole world, according to Paul. Or verse 23 the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed. In all creation, it has so thoroughly permeated the world, the Roman Empire, that Paul can even speak of it as having been proclaimed to all creation. So when we read Matthew 24, verse 14, and what Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, it's the same whole world that was registered under Caesar Augustus. It's the same whole world that Paul says has already received the gospel. In Paul's day, this was accomplished. Okay? And that's what we have then in Revelation 14. We have, in these two messages, we have the eternal gospel being proclaimed and the end of Babylon, Jerusalem being announced. Just like Jesus said. All right, now the third message. Verses 9 through 11. This is a message of judgment on those who have the mark of the beast. They will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. So the imagery here is of a very hard drink, not cut with water, not on the rocks. It is straight up full fury of God's wrath. And note that this terrible torment in these verses happens, verse 10 says, in the presence of the Lamb. The picture that our Christian culture has of Jesus as gentle and nice and never saying anything harsh and always forgiving no matter what and never punishing anyone, that's crazy talk. Jesus here brings justice, full justice. The enemies of Christ will pay for their rebellion. Then in verse 12, the fourth part here, John tells us that this is a call for the endurance of the saints. In other words... The fact that Jesus is king, that God's enemies will be judged, that should be encouraging to believers. Those who are faithful, who keep God's commands, they have faith in Jesus, they're the ones who will be defended by Christ on Mount Zion. And then a voice from heaven announces that those who die in the Lord from now on are blessed and will find rest. The last section then, verses 14 through 20, we have this double harvest. The first harvest is a harvest of the land, while the second harvest is a harvest of the vineyard. Now remember, if you're looking at the verses in front of you, you see the word earth, but you need to think land. Because it's Israel that is in view here. Both the land and the vineyard are images of Israel. But these harvests... Are different. The land of Israel is ripe. On the one hand, since its time is up, the land is ripe, it's time for God to harvest his people out of the land. But at the same time, since Israel's time is up and it's ripe, its judgment is about to fall. So let's look at each part. Verses 14 to 16, the harvest of the land. In these verses, we have one like a son of man, and we've seen this before. In Revelation 1, verse 7, verse 13, this is speaking of Jesus. It's language that is drawn from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. The son of man is Yahweh's designated king and ruler. He comes to the throne of God. He takes his place at God's right hand, and here he's seated on a cloud. That's an image of rulership and judgment. God coming on the clouds is an image of judgment. But there's nothing here that is negative judgment. The cloud is white. It's not a dark storm cloud. There's no threatening thunder or lightning or earthquake at this point. This seems to be a harvest of grain of the first fruits of the land. Remember what Jesus says, the wheat and the weeds grow up together until the end. And now that the end has come for Israel, God is harvesting the wheat out of the land. So remember that in verse 4, the 144,000 were called firstfruits for God and for the Lamb. So this seems to be a positive judgment separating out those in the land who are the true and faithful followers of Christ, the first fruits of the harvest of the eternal gospel. But the second part of the harvest is different. Here it's a vineyard, grapes that are ripe for harvest. And the vineyard, again, is an image for Israel. The grapes here are going to be thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God. In other words, Israel is about to face God's judgment. One of the Old Testament passages that associates Israel with a vineyard is Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me read that for you. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. So this is all speaking about God tending Israel as his vineyard. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. And hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. but behold, an outcry. See, Israel's the vineyard. and Here in Revelation 14, they are about to face their final judgment. Israel is being cast out, while the faithful ones who belong to Christ become the seed of the new covenant people of God. The adulterous bride is cast out and a new pure bride is formed. When John the Baptist began his ministry, do you remember what he announced? He's announcing the kingdom, all right? The kingdom is at hand, but he also said this. He said, even now the ax is laid at the root of the tree. He's talking about Israel being cut down, but the warning went unheeded. Jesus was rejected and Israel's final act of unfaithfulness was crucifying their Messiah. Now, the angel who calls for this harvest is from the altar, the incense altar. Do you remember what's associated with the incense altar in Revelation? It's where the souls of the martyred saints cry out for God to bring justice. And the angel who tends the altar now calls forth that judgment crying out for God to avenge their deaths. Those prayers are now answered. And the result of this harvest is that the grapes are trodden outside the city and blood flows as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. Blood running as hor- high as a horse's bridle is imagery designed to show the magnitude of the judgment. You can imagine okay, how deep that would be, blood that deep. That's obviously not literal, but it's a picture designed to show us the magnitude of the judgment that God is bringing. It's interesting that 1600 stadia is approximately the length of the land of Israel. Antoninus of Piacenza, who wrote the itinerarium in 570 AD about his travels through the Roman Empire, noted that the land of Israel was 1664 stadia. So the picture here is that this judgment fills the land of Israel. Note that the wine press is outside the city. Do you remember what else happened outside the city? Outside the city is where Jesus was crucified. So now the judgment is returning on those who crucified Jesus and their blood will flow at the place of judgment. Outside the city is where Jesus took the judgment for the sins of his people. And those who do not have faith in him, those who follow the beast, will face the judgment of God themselves. So note this. Either Jesus takes God's judgment for you, or you will face it yourself. Either Jesus takes God's judgment for you or you will face it yourself. Now, the main point that I want you to hear this morning is this. The slain lamb is victorious, protecting his people and punishing his enemies. That's what this chapter is telling us. The slain lamb is victorious, protecting his people and punishing his enemies. The picture that's painted in this chapter is of this victorious slain lamb, and he is standing, established on Mount Zion with his people. How does he protect his people? Well, he does it in two ways. First, he protects them by taking the wrath of God for their sin. He's the propitiation, the one who turns aside the wrath of God that rightly rested on them. He turns it aside, taking it on himself. He takes the penalty for our sin. Jesus is the true lamb who's slain for the sins of God's people. And second, he protects us from our enemies. Now, does that mean that we will never be harmed? No, of course not. But the enemy can only touch us as far as God allows for our good and for his glory. Well, what about those who are martyred? Well, for those who are martyred, God is glorified in their faithfulness, and they gain heaven. Remember what Paul says when he's talking about this very prospect himself. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Either way, I win. If I live, I get to serve Christ. If I die, I get to be with him. But the enemy cannot touch our soul. He can't steal our salvation. We eternally belong to Christ. We're his We're the 144,000 standing as his people on Mount Zion with him. The enemies of God will face final judgment. Sin will not go unpunished. That's illustrated in this passage. Either the lamb takes God's judgment for you or you'll face it yourself. Either way, your sins will be called to account. So why would you not accept Christ's free offer of the good news, the gospel? Why would you not want to be found in Christ? Let me take you to just one other place in scripture to explain this truth that the slain lamb is victorious, protecting his people and punishing his enemies. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is explaining the reality of the resurrection. It's a very long chapter. And and he's just explaining the resurrection to us. It's very detailed. And as the chapter draws to a close, it comes down to verse 56. He says that the resurrection will be the final victory over death. Here's what he says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? And then he comments on that victory saying in verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So who achieves the victory over death? Jesus does, who does the victory belong to? it belongs to Jesus. But then God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our victory over death, the promise of our resurrection, that hope we have, is a gift that comes to us because of Christ. He won it. He achieved it. He's the slain lamb who has conquered death. And he now stands victoriously on Mount Zion. But he stands there with his people. With you and me. And his victory is our victory. He's our representative. He's our king. So how should we respond to that? What use is this to us? Well, the next verse in 1 Corinthians 15, answers that question. After 57 verses explaining the resurrection, here's how Paul applies it. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Keep going. Don't give up be faithful be strong do the work because your work matters it matters in this life and it matters in the next life it's the same message that john wants us to hear in revelation 14 verse 12 here is a call for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of god and their faith in jesus endure keep going be faithful You see the lamb standing on Mount Zion with his people, and you see the judgment that is falling on his enemies. Here's how you respond. Be faithful. Endure. The slain lamb is victorious, protecting his people, punishing his enemies. May we respond then with faithfulness and endurance. Lord, I pray that as we consider the words of Revelation 14 and the message of this chapter, that we would respond in faith as John calls us to, as as Paul calls us to in 1 Corinthians 15, that we would see the victory that Jesus has won, that, that has now been given to us, and that we would respond in faithfulness, with endurance, that we would keep going. Help us to be Faithful people, because of what you have done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in this 14th chapter of Revelation, we've seen the slain lamb, and we've seen a double harvest a grain harvest and a grape harvest grain and grapes, bread and wine. And so we come now to the Lord's Supper where we eat the bread and the wine, in remembrance of the slain lamb. And these two harvests, the grain and the grapes, the bread and the wine, remind us of what we're celebrating. In the wheat harvest, the bread, the grain, we're reminded that in Christ, God has gathered us to himself as his people. In the Old Testament, remember, the bread in the tabernacle, There was 12 loaves and it symbolized the people of God. It symbolized the people of Israel. There were 12 loaves for the 12 tribes and the bread sat in the holy place in the presence of God. Well, in Revelation 14, the wheat harvest is gathered and the lamb stands on Mount Zion with his people. When Jesus shared the last supper with his disciples, What did he say about the bread? He said, this is my body, which is given for you. And then the New Testament writers go on to tell us later that the church is his body. So the bread is his body and the church is his body, the bread, the harvest, the church, his people. And it's his death, his body given for us that makes it possible for us to be with him as his people, his body. In the harvest of the vineyard, or the grapes, in Revelation 14, we have this judgment harvest. The grapes are thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God. And that reminds us of what happens to those who do not have faith in Christ. But that judgment in Revelation 14 happens outside the city. And outside the city is the place where Jesus himself faced the winepress of the wrath of the fury of God against our sin. At the Last Supper, Jesus said of the wine, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant, which allows us to be the people of God, comes at the expense of Christ's blood. He took the judgment of God's wrath the winepress of the fury of God's wrath against our sin, he took that on himself. So we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And in doing this, we're remembering what what makes it possible for us to be the people of God. What makes it possible for the victorious slain lamb to stand on Mount Zion with us, his people.